0: So let's let's do that. Uh, it will be Christmassy, if we want to call it that. So real quick, just for a little background uh, to get into what we're going to talk about, you know that there, perhaps, that there are four accounts in the Scriptures of the life of Jesus. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two of the accounts provide us with details referring to the birth of Christ. That's Matthew and Luke. The Gospel of Mark in, in the... The spirit of Mark, it just jumps right to, I mean, right over the birth of Christ and straight into the ministry of John the Baptist. And then from there, it goes into the rest of the life of Jesus. But the apostle John, instead of beginning with John the Baptist or only going back as far as the birth of Jesus, he actually reaches back into eternity. He says, let's get down to the real story. Let's go way back. He looks back before there ever was a beginning that he might provide really the greater background to uh, the Christmas story. Matthew and Luke, they begin with the incarnation. John looks back before it, the pre-incarnation. So let's, I want to look back with him. So here at Calvary Chapel, uh, we we stand for the reading of God's Word. So I invite you to do that with us this morning. And because we're doing things different, um, I'm actually going to be reading out of the English Standard Version uh, rather than the New King James Version. Uh, In the New King James Version, there's a bit of ambiguity. It's not that it's uh, incorrect. It's just not as clear. So I'm going to read John 1, chapter 1, verse 1 through 14, the ESV. You can follow along in your New King James, uh, or you can listen To the ESV. Fair enough? Okay. I will be back in the New King James next week, so don't go buy a new Bible. Uh, Yeah. And don't buy an ESV because you can get them free online. John reports to us In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that uh, you inspired John to report these details to us in, in the manner that he did. It's, it's everywhere in the scriptures, but it's compiled uniquely here, and and I pray, Lord, that um, you, would, um, you would add, Lord, to our understanding of the incarnation, the story of Christmas, and that you would inspire us, Lord, to uh, live according to all of the implications. And, uh, so thank you, Lord. Open our hearts, our minds, help us to understand, and um, yeah, thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go be seated. Right, well, um, let's return, if you will, to verse 1, and uh going to be slightly theological for a little bit, and then we'll get into more of the, the practical, okay? All right, well, verse 1, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, this is the reason, actually, that when people are new to the Scriptures, I don't turn them to John, because they read the first couple verses in John, and they're just like, what is going on? And uh, so I, I usually send people to Mark, and so if you are new to the Scriptures, um, I encourage you to go to the book of Mark, but uh, we'll talk about this this morning. So in keeping with the overall context of John chapter 1, the Word is a person. The word is a person. He's not a a concept. Uh, It's not a principle. And the language of all this is really important. He says, in the beginning was the word. The word was God. And the word, I'm sorry, the word was with God. And the word was God. The verb was is used three times. You're going to use it elsewhere in the chapter. Every time it's stated in the imperfect tense, that is, in the timeless sense. So the phrase, in the beginning was the word, does not mean that the word came to be in the beginning, but that he was simply present when things began. He existed before there ever was a beginning. He existed before that. And that the word was with God suggests a timeless relationship with him. And then finally, that the word was God speaks to his eternal existence as God. The word stands outside of time and is eternally present with God because he is God. So there's no beginning for the word, no starting point. He has always been with God in this timeless state of existence forever. Now, of course, the word beginning is a reference to time, but what, what is the beginning? What, what's the be, what is it the beginning of? Well, it's the beginning of time, the beginning of time itself. As verse th- 3 indicates, it's at the time of creation when time began and the material world was then brought into existence. So the passage is actually looking back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You see all three things there. In the beginning, time, heaven, space, earth, matter. Time, space, matter it was all brought into existence. Okay? So the word was present at the beginning of all of those things. And then John continues with the phrase The word was with God, and the word was God. Okay? So, with God, and was God, how is that possible? How is that possible? Now, some have mistakenly rendered that the word was a God. You ever heard that? There's even a translation out there uh, that was done by first-year Greek students that says that the word was a God. Uh, That he was not timeless, but was brought into existence at a certain point in time by God himself. In other words, the word, according to them, was created. He wasn't present at the beginning. He was created in the beginning. Well, a few things. The grammar doesn't lend itself to that conclusion. The rest of scripture condemns it, and logic forbids it. Okay? It's, it's, it's not even possible in the text. So what does it mean that the word was with God and was God? Well, really, honestly, it, it's only possible in what we call Trinitarian theology. It's only possible if God is a trinity or a triunity. Okay, so listen carefully. One divine essence consisting of three equal persons, the word being just one of those persons, the Father, and the Holy Spirit being the other two. The Word is said to be timelessly God. So He has to be of the same essence as God. He has to possess the same nature as God, and therefore He can be both with God and be God. And as we look at the Scriptures, and as John is going to present Him throughout the narrative, He is indeed very God. And he possesses all of the attributes, all of the qualities of God. He's distinct only in personhood from the others, but not in quality, not in essence, or nature. So I, one theologian described it this way. He says, the divine essence is not a who, but a what. The divine persons are each a who. So then grammatically, there's one what, And there's three who's. The Trinity. The three persons of the Trinity, they are of the same essence, possessing all the same attributes and qualities. That is the God of creation. So in keeping with our text, the Word, who is God, was present with the other persons of the Trinity at the beginning of creation, this plurality. We see examples of it throughout the Scriptures, but one of the places that we see it is immediately in the creation story. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where God says, Let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. Yeah. Did I flick my screen over? That's one way to lose my place. Yeah. So the word is just one of those divine persons. Yeah. So I I did warn you that it was a little theological. So the word was there at the beginning. What was he doing? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So here in the text, it says that the agent of creation was the Word. He was the divine person by which all things were brought into existence. That seems like an important detail, doesn't it? By which all things were brought into existence. It is interesting, when we look at the account of creation in Genesis 1, all things were brought into existence by the Word of God in the very text. The common phrase that comes from God is, let there be. That's a word from God. And by his very word, all things appeared. And here we discover that the word of God is, the per- is, is a person of the Trinity by whom the world and everything in it was created and then fashioned according to the divine will. So everything that was created came into existence by the word. Of course, and some people say, then, well, he must have created sin because sin exists. You've all noticed that, right? Yeah. No, sin is actually a distortion of the good that already existed. Huge difference, right? Um, We wrecked what he made. We took what was beautiful. We took what was beneficial. And we vandalized it. And here we are. That's not his doing, that's ours. One theologian said we took a good thing called free will, and we did a lot of bad things with it. Okay. But the word, his original creation was very good. It was void of sin, it was void of suffering, of illness, and death. Okay? All of creation, including you, it was brought into existence by the word that John is talking about. What else? He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, in him was life. We have the same timeless verb again, was. Life itself then finds its timeless source in the word himself. Now, now this sort of life is not to be confused with biological life. This isn't biology. This is life itself. The the Greek word for biology or, or biological life is bios. That's not the word used here. John uses the word zoe for really the essence of life itself. And it's important also to point out an important distinction between the life that was in the word timelessly and what was created by the Word. You see, time, space, and matter, which includes biological life, it had a beginning. It began. They haven't existed eternally. They did not exist, and then they did. Out from absolutely nothing. The Word did not use pre-existing material to create the world. He's not like us. He first creates the material, and then he begins to fashion things with it. I have to go to Home Depot to get the stuff he created, (laughs) and then i got to assemble it. He doesn't do that. But see, this is not the case with life itself. The life that was in the Word is actually eternal. This kind of life isn't created at all. It has always existed in the Word. He is life itself, uncreated. But this life then is extended to whomever He wills it, and only to whom He wills. This kind of life is eternal. So the Word is the creator of all things, and He's the source of life itself. Now, this brings up, I think, a fairly important issue. If he's the source of life itself, that means that all life must flow from him, and therefore all life depends upon him. Currently, all life is depending upon him, not only for its existence, but for its persistence. He doesn't just create and then give life He sustains it all. He gave it, and He can take it away. He's sovereign over life itself. He could uncreate all things as quickly as He created them, and He could withdraw life as quickly as He gave it. He's sovereign over life. All of creation owes its existence to Him, and it depends on Him. My life, your life, it's in his hands. Now, I think that the reality of that is just slightly sobering. And it should be alarming for because people take the life that has been given to them and they blaspheme the giver. Yeah, they take the freedom granted to them and they rebel. They curse with the very breath that was loaned to them. They're depending on him. Curse him. Astounding. John then moves on to say that the word was the light of men. Well, of course he is. If he's the source of all life, eternal and biological, then he must be the light of everything that has life. Here, the words life and light are actually interchangeable in the statement. Light is synonymous here with life. His life, then, is the life of all men. In his life, his light shines in the darkness. Now, he's not talking about you know physical darkness. Darkness here must refer to the moral and spiritual darkness brought on by sin, which results in death. And death has to be tied to sin because death was introduced into our world by sin itself. We talked about that last week, Romans chapter five. For by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. So light, then, is also uh, a moral and spiritual reality, just as darkness is. The light of the Word, he's saying that it perpetually shines in the face of darkness, of spiritual death that has been introduced by sin. Now, the ESV translation, which, of course, is on the screen, says that the darkness has not overcome the light. You know, that implies that darkness is trying to overcome the light, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's constantly resisting the light. It's suppressing the light. The darkness of the world, because of sin, is constantly at odds with the light that emanates from the Word. The, the darkness of this world loves death rather than life. In chapter 3, John says, that light has come into the world... And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil, John 3, 19. Now, demonstrating the truth of that statement is just far too easy, far too easy. You know, one just needs to glance at the wars of the world, all the violence and hate, human trafficking and abortion, murder and rape, theft and corruption. And those who are not personally guilty of those kinds of evil, they actively feed on them by way of the news, Hollywood, video games, and a host of other things. The love of darkness just permeates the human condition. Indeed, there, as Paul says, there are none righteous, not even one. Okay. But the light continues to shine. Now, your translation, uh, which is also the New King James, it, it, might, it does say that dark, the darkness did not comprehend it, it didn't comprehend the light, rather, it overcame it rather than it overcame it. The thing here is the Greek word can actually be translated both ways. So the challenge that the translator has is that when he comes to it, he has to determine which is best according to the context. So which is it? Well, for starters, John uses the same phrase later on in chapter 12, verse 35, where it can only mean overcame. It can't mean to comprehend. So darkness, as an evil entity in the world, it's trying to overcome the light and extinguish its influence. And second, when it comes to this whole issue, I found that the problem is not that people fail to understand things pertaining to the light. I've had many, many unbelievers, even uh, who aggressively oppose the gospel, understand the gospel message itself. But they hate it. So I found that the problem isn't that they don't understand, it's that they don't welcome it, they don't don't receive it. They're resistant, okay? Even though the light of life is what man desperately needs more than anything. When it comes to the light of which the passage presents and how one obtains it, man is, you know, he's hostile at worst. He's inhospitable at best always in varying degrees of resistance. Now I think that, you know, as an illustration, because man's eyes have so adjusted to spiritual darkness that the piercing light of heaven is just offensive to them. How many of you guys have been, you know, woken up with a piercing light? And the first words out of your mouth was, thank you. (laughs) I appreciate that. He burned my retina out. Yeah. So it's it's painful to them. So sinful people, unregenerate people, they lash out against it. You know, this can be demonstrated experientially, or rather, experimentally. Experimentally. You know, just just be assertive and and share the biblical gospel with, you know, five people this week and see what happens. But make sure it's biblical, you know, insisting that they forsake their sinful ways, and, and trust in Christ who was slain for their sins in order to deliver them from the judgment they deserve. Just be clear about it, okay? Be honest with them. And try it as a school teacher. See what happens. A government official, a hospital nurse, an employee, a college student, preferably at Evergreen, okay, let's, <laughs> let's make it challenging, or go to a pride parade, or just about any country in the Middle East. The world is hostile to the gospel, and it's becoming more hostile, okay? John goes on. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, this John is not to be confused with the author of this book, uh, whose name is John. It's John the Apostle is the author, the John of verse 6 here is John the Baptist. He's the, the funny-dressed, you know, locust-eating desert dweller, okay? Uh, you've read about him in the Gospels. He came preaching that all men should repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They should be baptized. So John, this John the Baptist, he was sent by God to bear witness about the identity of the light, who we know is the Word. John came to testify. He came preaching, persuading the people of Israel to trust in the light that they might partake of the light of life. John makes clear, especially in the narrative as you go on in John, I'm not to be confused with the light. I'm here to point to him, I'm here to testify. It wasn't a bad gig, actually, until he was beheaded because the world is hostile hostile to the gospel. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So the true light is the word. He's coming into the world to give it light, to extend his light. And it says in the text, to provide it for everyone so that they wouldn't remain in darkness. But here's the tragedy. Darkness has so blinded those in the world that the one who created the world is a stranger to it. How bizarre is that? Jeez. How could that be remedied? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. So the word, he came to his own. That's a reference to the Jews. But the Jews, by decision of their religious authorities, they did not receive him even though many individuals trusted in him. And the text says that for those who did receive him by means of believing in his name, he gave them the right or the authority to become children of God. To become children of God. This is interesting. We know that the word from the text created all people because nothing exists that he did not create, but by virtue of being his creation, it does not make us all God's children. I know it's, it's really popular to say, we're all God's kids. No, we're not. We were created by him. But the only kids that God has are the ones that have trusted in the name of the word. It's only to them that he gives them the right to become children of God. So how did the word come to his own? This is the best. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So listen to this. The word of timeless existence, who brought all things into existence, He crossed over the threshold from eternity into time to become flesh. The text literally means that God became a man. So he set aside his divine prerogatives and was born in the likeness of us. He humbled himself. He stepped down from his throne, from which he had, for a very long time, been receiving adoration from angels. And was then conceived in a virgin's womb, by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And instead of being born in a palace, he was delivered in a barn and placed in a feeding trough for livestock. The sovereign king, the creator of the universe, became a peasant. The omnipotent one became vulnerable. The infinite one became an infant. The possessor of all things was deprived of everything. As Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness, for God was manifest in the flesh. Well, why would he do that? It just sounds insane. You remember how John the Baptist says he came to bear witness of the light? Well, when he saw the word walking by, He said to his disciples, look, behold him, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. So first, he identified the word as the Lamb of God, and then he declares the purpose of his coming, to take away the sins of the world. And this was actually communicated earlier by the angel when he appeared to Joseph. Remember, he was struggling over this whole thing of Mary being pregnant, and the angel says, don't be afraid to take her as your wife, because what is conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. And he says, and you shall name him Jesus, because he will rescue, he will save his people from their sins. That's purpose. So spiritual moral darkness was in the world, but the Lamb of God became flesh to take away our sins, to save us from our sins. Well, how would he do that? Well, according to the law of God, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is exactly what John was alluding to when he called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away sin. When he said Lamb of God, he doesn't mean, you know, this this cute child of God. That's maybe what we hear. I I don't know why we would hear that. I guess maybe we don't read enough Scripture or something. He was talking about Jesus being the sacrificial lamb, the sacrificial lamb that God had provided for the sins of the world. The, The word became flesh. He was born into this world on Christmas Day, that he might be sacrificed as the Passover lamb. This, this was the way that God chose to take away the sins of the world. Now, a lot has to go in this. In order to take away someone else's sins, in the economy of God's justice, the one taking those sins must first be innocent of all sin. They must be sinless, morally perfect. Who qualifies? that in this room. (laughs) And then they must become a sin bearer. They must take to themselves the sin and the guilt of others, at which point they must suffer the consequences for the other person's sins, enduring the horrors of divine justice. But it doesn't end there. If their sacrifice is to secure eternal salvation for the sinner... They must defeat death by rising from the dead. You see, that's the only way to know that God is satisfied and approves of the price paid for sin. Must rise from the dead. You guys, Jesus was born to be a sin bearer. The only suitable sacrifice for sinners. And you know how interesting that the Lamb of God was born in a barn where sacrificial animals would have been kept, protected, and nourished until the day that they were offered. Think it was by accident? Now, I'm not sure of all that Christmas means to you, but it was on Christmas morn that my Savior was born. The sacrifice for my sins. And his salvation is, it's available to all who forsake their sinful ways and they trust in his sacrifice. Indeed, Jesus was manifested in the flesh to take away our sins. 1 John 3:5. To wash, to forgive, to grant eternal life. But those who do not forsake their sins They will retain their guilt and they'll face God's judgment on their own and they'll do it without a sacrifice. They will die for their own sins from which there's no recovery. Scripture says they'll be lost forever. The cute baby in the manger was God in man who came to die in your place on Calvary's cross. But those who refuse him will be judged by him if you don't think of christmas in those terms you've missed the point and you're missing out when the angels announced to the shepherds you know what was going down in bethlehem they said for unto us or unto you rather is born this day in the city of david a savior who is Christ the Lord. He he did not come to establish a holiday. He came to save sinners. I, you know, Jesus is too good to beg anyone. But I would plead with you that today is the day of salvation. God, through Christ Jesus, has made it possible for all sinners to come to him be redeemed, to be washed, to partake of the life that he he gives. Now, let me move on to the application for those who believe. In keeping with the context of the light of life, and that Christ came to give his light to mankind, and for mankind to spread that light, you guys have the candles, right? Right? Every kid in this room is so excited to have these candles. Yeah. So some folks will be coming down the aisles to light those candles so that then you can spread his light that he's given you to someone else, to your neighbor. As they do that, I'll provide some commentary, and then we'll finish with some worship uh, as your torches burn. Uh, When we're all finished... Uh, Please take your candles to the exit in the back, and then you can um, dispose of them there. Not in the garbage, mind you. (laughs) Yeah. So Paul says that, you know, Christ has delivered the believer from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, Colossians 1.13. So the believer was transferred from darkness to the light. The unbeliever still remains in the domain of darkness. So if you have trusted in Christ, his light, his life, it's been received by you, dwells in you. He has ignited you, as it were. And now you have become a light bearer. You have. Jesus came bringing that light to the world and then He entrusted it to us that we would also go into the world and shine his light to others. Jesus told those who followed him, he said, you are the light of the world. So you're just going to have to deal with it. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, in the military, we practiced something at night called light discipline. I hated it. (laughs) We would place a red lens in our flashlight so the light wouldn't be seen far away by the enemy, which, you know, would compromise our safety and the mission. Well, that's the opposite of what Jesus wants to do. Our light is meant to be seen. Jesus didn't issue us a red lens to conceal the light in the darkness. Shining our light in darkness is the mission. And there's benefits to the darkness. We should use darkness to our advantage. For wherever there is darkness, light is more obvious, is it not? Yeah. So let your light shine. By the Holy Spirit, Paul encourages us to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. We are the children of God, and we are to shine as lights in a crooked and perverse world. And notice in the text how our shining light is dependent on our holding fast to the word of life. So he came into the world, again, to transfer light to us that we might transfer it to others. And so Christ beckons us to cling to him, that he might brighten our brilliance. So the example of our lives and the proclamation of our message, it should just be on, <laughs> it should be on display for everyone to see and to hear. The world is in darkness, your neighbors, your co-workers, your family and friends. And God has given you light for their sake. So let it burn brightly. Merry Christmas. Let's worship together.